like what we do here at Clever, please consider supporting the show. To make a one-time donation, click the link in the episode description. Thank you. Hi, I'm Neil Innes. And I'm Andres Bartos from Passport. Each week, we travel to a new place to tell you enlightening, smart, and just plain incredible stories which have shaped our destination. We want you to experience the world with us. And so does this week's sponsor, Booking.com. And the best news is they're about to have the biggest sale of the year where you can save 30% or more. This is a limited offer, so make sure you book before the 1st of December 2020 to travel anytime before the end of 2021. Find amazing deals now at booking.com forward slash Black Friday to come and travel with us. Ah, Thanksgiving. You've got your stuffing, your gravy, and of course your turkey. But what about the drinks? Don't panic. Just use Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. Drizzly lets you compare prices from local liquor stores on a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered right to your door in under 60 minutes. And right now, Drizzly is giving all new customers $5 off their first order. Just enter the promo code GOBBLE at checkout. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com. Support for Clever comes from Master and Dynamic. We know you love great design and care about quality audio. So we know you will love Master and Dynamics headphones and earphones. Brilliant sound and design motivates everything they do. So Master and Dynamic products are the perfect gift for the music and design obsessed alike. And after you see the craftsmanship and premium materials, we know you'll want to get a pair for yourself too. Whether you're looking for luxurious and comfortable over-ear headphones, portable and power-packed true wireless earphones, or an immersive wireless speaker. Master and Dynamic has what you need to upgrade your listening experience. Hear your favorite podcast, clever, obviously, and your favorite songs in a whole new way. Visit masterdynamic.com and use the code CLEVER for 10% off your new pair of headphones. Terms and conditions apply. That's masterdynamic.com. Okay, great. Um, are you now? Are you guys on landline? No, we're both on Skype. We're on recording Skype. this through high tech innovations. <laughs> um, you know how stupid I am. I literally don't even know what Skype is. <laughs> You're adorable. <laughs> I'm, that's one. That's one way of putting it. It's just um, dumb and like out of it. <laughs> I, I don't know what Skype is. Isn't that? Yeah, I'm like I am a luddite potter. Um, at the end of the day, in the beginning of the day, in the middle of the day. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Derringer. And I'm Amy Devers. And this is Clever. And today, our guest on Clever is the potter and housewares designer who was very much a household name. Wait for it. Jonathan Adler. Woo! <laughs> if you don't know who Jonathan Adler is... You're wrong. You do know who he is. He's built his namesake brand, Jonathan Adler, by way of the potter's wheel, first with his signature pottery, and then everything from furniture to home accessories to luxurious interiors. His empire includes 29 retail stores, several books on design, one of which is a personal manifesto entitled Jonathan Adler, My Prescription for Antidepressive Living. He's a serious craftsman who doesn't take himself too seriously, and while he's already accomplished so, so much, he himself will tell you that atop the disco cube of life, he's only at mid-jiggle. 
(laughs) (laughs) Obviously, he's super fun to talk to. So let's start the conversation. Yeah. Hello. Hi, is this Jonathan? It is. Hi, it's Jamie and Amy from Clever. How are you? I'm so great. How are you guys? Great. It's good to talk to you. Yeah, we're thrilled you could do this. Yeah, totally. Are you kidding me? I'm thrilled to do it. You and I have actually had conversations in person because we are both from Southern New Jersey, if you remember. Yes. Where are you from again? Yes, I'm from Cherry Hill. Oh, Cherry Hill. You're like like the deep south of Jersey, right? I am from the deep redneck south of New Jersey, and Cherry Hill was sort of the glittering metropolis on the horizon. <laughs> that I That's kind of sad. <laughs> of getting to. I know, sad. Oh, okay. So why don't you tell me a little bit about what it was like to live kind of in the middle of nowhere? Yeah, so I, I grew up in a town called Bridgeton, New Jersey, that really is in the middle of nowhere. It's three hours from New York, an hour and a half from Philly, an hour from the beach, an hour from everything, no highway nearby. So I was completely isolated. And it was quite rural. And however, my parents were not particularly rural. My dad was from there, but my mom was sort of a groovy, urbane sophisticate who was working at Vogue. And my dad, they got married and my dad was like, all right, honey, now we're going to leave New York and go home. And so I grew up in the country and it was kind of great to to grow up in a quite isolated country, not fancy kind of way. Did you have siblings? I do. Yeah, I have an older brother and sister. Everybody in my family is super smart except for me. And <laughs> Oh, you um, went to we Brown. Were, I know better. I did. <laughs> and we were like feral. I was sort of parented by <laughs> benign neglect, and we would just go outside and play. And it was like a very um, cash, easy breezy childhood. You know, I learned that you discovered pottery at summer camp while wearing a Rush concert tee, I might add. Uh, yeah. <laughs> And I just want you to paint the story of your, your coming of age for us. What, what was adolescent Jonathan Adler like? Well, adolescent Jonathan Adler was, was gay and therefore kind of tortured and found refuge in clay. So, you know, at the, it might be hard for um, some of your younger listeners to, to understand, but back in the day, like being a gay teen in the early 80s was not a great thing to be. Especially um, in a rural out. area, yeah. I might imagine. Yeah, it was unheard of. I wasn't out or anything, but I spent my entire adolescence in the basement of my family's house where I set up a pottery studio. And I would like listen to new wave music and listen to Grace Jones and sort of make pots and, um, and base out. And it was really fabulous to have something to be so involved in and focused on and passionate about. And it was quite accidental, but authentic to me. Like I'm, I'm not a spiritual person at all, but the second I touched clay at summer camp, it was just on. I love that. That's, it sounds like it really helped you connect with something in the physical world that, that helped you channel your torture into something a lot more (laughs) meaningful. (laughs) (laughs) So just to dig in a little bit, if you weren't out, were you still questioning your sexuality or were you hiding it? Were you dating oh, no, girls? There was, there was no question. Okay. Okay. <laughs> no, no question. <laughs> just hiding it as one did. Yes. Okay. Okay. And then you made the decision to go to Brown for college. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
And at that point, are you out? No, it was, again, it was like a very different time. Um, mm-hmm. It was AIDS. Honestly, right. It was mm-hmm. sort of a, the height of AIDS. I went to college in 1984. Um, it was just happening. And it was like, it, it's a freaky time. And I, it's funny, I work with a lot of millennials who don't really understand what it was like, but it was a freaky and very like upsetting time. I mean, eventually, obviously, I was out, but it was, yeah, it was a weird, a weird time to be gay. Yes, I can understand that. What did you study when you went to Brown? I studied semiotics and art history. Mm. So I was, I, I was really most interested in design and, and so semiotics was like, kind of a way to study film and contemporary culture and art history was obviously art history, but mostly I studied nothing and just hung out, had a blast with people who went on to become my best friends and favorite people, and then spent a lot of my time at RISD making pots. At one point, a RISD professor discouraged you from becoming a potter and you gave it up for a little bit. How how did that make you feel? Yes, it's actually really a funny story because at the end of college, the Brown Daily Herald, the student newspaper, profiled two graduating seniors, one of whom had like a job working on Wall Street, and the other one they profiled as the clueless senior, and that was me. Um, oh, person, no. And I, yeah, and I just had no idea what I was going to do. It was like the you know graduation week, and I said, I don't know what I'm going to do tomorrow. I don't know what I'm going to do the day after tomorrow. I said, maybe I'll just move to Santa Fe and make baskets or you know something. But I had no plans. And then I went. I had no job, nothing to do. So I, I said to my teacher at RISD, can I just sort of spend a year here making pots while I figure out my life? And they were like, sure. And so I spent a year at RISD after school, not as an official student. And then I went to my professor at the end and said, you know, this has been great. I think I want to get a master's in ceramics. Mm-hmm. Now that I'm a grown-up, and thinking back on it, if I were that teacher, my only question would be, okay, do, can you pay? <laughs> right. Because it's such a preposterous idea. The idea of getting your like master's in ceramics is a very bad idea. And the only thing they should want to know is like, if you're willing to pay for it, fine. Anyway, she said, you know what? I just don't think we have a spot here for you. I remember it as Claire's Day. She said, we don't have a spot here for you. This is not what you should do. I just think you should know you really don't have the talent to become a potter, which again, is, it's preposterous um, to think about saying that to a, you know, 21 year old. Right. Especially somebody who's so passionate about making pots, you would think yeah. that, that it would be the opposite and they would encourage you. I know it's, it's really hilarious looking back on, it. I mean, everything's totally fine. Like I've not bitter at all. I think it's just an amusing anecdote, but at the time it was troubling so I took her advice and I moved to New York and got a, like I was unemployed for months, finally got a job working in the movie business and I got fired from that job. I got fired from my next job. I got fired from like four jobs in a row, like, cause I was terrible, terrible, terrible at being an adult. What were you doing in the movie business? I was like an assistant to an agent okay. and then oh, okay. a movie producer. Um, But mostly I was just sort of like taking personal calls and and sleeping with everybody in the office. (laughs) Oh, that sounds exciting. Can we hear more about that? It was, you know what? It was fun. 
Yeah. Until I got fired. I, I had a blast at all of my jobs until I got the axe. That was less fun. But the truth is, I was just unfit for the workplace. Obvious. <laughs> well, plus you, were, you had to sow your oats and you had some rebelling to do, it sounds like. Hmm. Yeah, I did. And I, it's so weird. Like, I just, I keep meeting all these, like, kids who are graduating from college saying they're all like, you know, I want to get a job before I leave. And I'm thinking I should go into consulting or banking. And I'm like, bro, chill. Like, just sort of let it unfold. Nothing matters. Yeah. That's kind of how I rolled. Until I was 26 and unemployed and broke. And my parents were like, what are you doing? And so I started teaching classes at night at a pottery studio called Mud, Sweat, and Tears in Hell's <laughs> Kitchen. So I would make pots during the day and teach classes at night in Hell's Kitchen. And eventually I got, I, I, like, I'd been unemployed for, at this point, two years, just treading water. And my parents were like, all right, you either, like, get a job or something has to happen. So I called up a buyer at Barney's and said, hi, I'm this guy. I make pots. Can I show, can I show you the pots? Um, and <laughs> did, Wait, did you have a connection to a buyer at Barney's or did you just find him in the phone book or how did you have no, a gumption like a to do something? No, it was like a friend okay. who knew somebody. In any event, they agreed to come over to my studio apartment and looked at my pots and placed an order. And that was kind wow. of how my journey began. I know. My, That's huge. My journey began. Yeah, that yeah. is huge. I think anybody today who makes product would be jumping for joy if they got an order from Barney's. How big yeah. was the order? Well, it was probably my new, it was probably like, I don't know, probably 1200 1500 bucks. And that was for a lot of pots because I was charging like $15 for some pots that would take like a day to make. So oh. I was very dumb, very, <laughs> very dumb and very clueless. I remained clueless, just like Brown Deli Herald said. And I was clueless for a lot of years. I think I started to get a clue in my mid-40s. Oh, good. Then it's still going to happen for me. <laughs> yeah, it's going to happen. Well, there's hope for the rest of There's still of time. <laughs> and so what happened after Barney's placed that order? I, I assume they placed another order. They did. To be totally honest, I didn't get paid from them for about six months. And I finally called them up and said, oh, hey, I make those stripey pots. And I was just wondering if you can pay me because at the time my dad was sort of paying on my bills. They said, oh, you're the guy who didn't include an invoice. And I said, wait, what's an invoice? <laughs> That's true. I was just very, very dumb. And, you know, I'm not just saying that because ha, ha I'm so great. And I just kind of accidentally happened into this. It was just a reflection of the fact that I really was an outsider in this world. Mm. Like I had no experience in the design business or the design world. I purely came at it from this sort of very naive and oddly, oddly pure perspective, which is so odd because I consider myself a highly impure person. But as it related to my work, I was pretty like just committed and devoted to making stuff. I never had a plan. I never had a vision for anything. I just wanted to make stuff. Well, that sounds like a really honest and transparent way to come from it, like not overthinking it too much. And right. you just got yourself into a situation where you had to, you tell me, you had to keep up with demand? Yeah, I did. It's, as I said, I had no plan, but I did get orders. And so I sort of had to just keep making pots. And it was a fabulous way to start my career because 
I didn't really have time to think. I was just like in it all of a sudden. And I would get up in the morning, rollerblade down to the studio, make like a hundred mugs, dove into this career and became incredibly hardworking and skilled. You know, there's that Malcolm Gladwell, 10,000 hours concept. Mm -hmm. Really? In my case is true. I have spent so many hours behind that bloody potter's wheel that I really became incredibly skilled at it. And it was an intense, I'd say from like about 26 till 30 were my lost years, me and Clay and the wheel. Yeah, that's really interesting. You accidentally stumbled into a career and what you originally discovered at 12 years old was something you really wanted to do. Yes. Without putting all that effort into, I'm going to set out and start a business and this is what I'm going to do and here's my plan. Instead, you just kind of fell into a dream come true. Yeah. And the thing is, this was, I'm trying to think what year this was. I guess I was like 93 is when I got my first order. And the word brand didn't exist. Mm -hmm. Like at the time, that word didn't exist. A brand, if you said brand, you might be referring to like Kellogg's. Maybe right. Coca-Cola, but it wasn't like every single person was sculpting their brand identity and, you know, discussing themselves in lofty terms. And that was fantastic. Look at people who start companies today and they all do like branding exercises and logos and blah, blah, blah. And it seems to me to be putting the cart before the horse. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm thrilled to have come up at a time when I didn't even, it never even occurred to me that I was starting a company, let alone launching a brand or doing anything, it all just kind of organically happened. And it was only many, 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 many years later that I even took the time to reflect on what I was trying to do or what I had done. I was too busy doing it to think about it. And I think that's much better than the way people roll today. I could agree with you. I think sometimes the, the way people roll today is they put too much thought into it and not enough action into it. And then, yeah. and then they're so invested in a concept, but they don't actually have the sweat and tears behind it to support. Can't swatch in store? Finding your perfect foundation match is basically impossible right now. That's why Il Maquillage's online quiz is such a game changer. It finds your perfect match in seconds from the comfort of your own home. And it gets even better. With Try Before You Buy, you can try your full-size shade at home free for 14 days. So convenient in times like these. Take the quiz at ilmakiage.com slash quiz. That's I-L-M-A-K-I-A-G-E dot com slash quiz. Support for Clever comes from Master and Dynamic. We know you love great design and care about quality audio. So we know you will love Master and Dynamics headphones and earphones. Brilliant sound and design motivates everything they do. So Master and Dynamic products are the perfect gift for the music and design obsessed alike. And after you see the craftsmanship and premium materials, we know you'll want to get a pair for yourself too. Whether you're looking for luxurious and comfortable over-ear headphones, portable and power-packed true wireless earphones, or an immersive wireless speaker, Master and Dynamic has what you need to upgrade your listening experience. Hear your favorite podcast, clever, obviously, and your favorite songs in a whole new way. Visit masterdynamic.com and use the code CLEVER for 10% off your new pair of headphones. Terms and conditions apply. 
That's masterdynamic.com. So quick sidebar, um, you said 26 to 30 were the lost years. I think you were referring to the lost years professionally, right? Yes. What was going well, no, on in no, your not, personal not, life? No, I guess it was sort of the lost years of me as a human because it was just me in my pottery studio. Okay. Like I didn't take a – from 26 to 28, I didn't take a single day off. I would go – I went home for Thanksgiving and maybe like one beach weekend. Otherwise, it was just – studio seven days a week. And then when I met my husband, I was 28 and he was like, let's go on vacation. And I said, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> and like after dating Simon, my husband, for a couple of months, we went on vacation. That was completely revelatory. So those years were lost when I met my husband when I was 28. He put up with me as a clay spattered full-time potter for a good two years of seven days a week with the occasional mini break. And I'm trying to think of when I got out from behind the wheel. I guess when I was about 30, I thought, all right, I can't go on. anymore. My business will never grow. My creativity will never expand if I have to make everything myself, which I think is slightly counterintuitive. I think when people think about artisans, they project a sort of the idea of purity onto the maker of things. Mm -hmm. And for me, ironically, stopping making everything myself enabled me to be infinitely more creative. I don't think that's ironic at all. I think that makes a lot of sense because after you've already created a few objects and now you're just repeating yourself over and over again just to fill orders, you're hamstrung by that in a way because you don't have the time or the energy to create new projects. Yeah, and I mean, this is kind of a slightly technical or nuanced idea, but I think within pottery, there's many different ways one can approach it. Some people just have an incredible hand. Like some people, some people's work is just very gestural, and because they make it themselves, you kind of see their hand. It's like all lives in the moment, and mm -hmm. those people should just make stuff all day long. And while I was a really good potter, and I, I still do like my handmade stuff, it wasn't so dependent on gesture. Mm, it, was, right. it was I really always approached it as a designer. I just didn't quite know that. My stuff was always yeah more designed than gestural ceramics. Only, as I said, I didn't know it and didn't know that I didn't have to make every piece myself. And then finally, I hooked up with Aid to Artisans, which is a nonprofit that connects American designers with artisans in developing countries for kind of a PC business relationship. Mm -hmm. And I hopped on a plane to Peru and found a fantastic workshop that I still work with today. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And just, and fine. And sort of said, Oh, help. You know, I sort of <laughs> surrendered. It was like one of those, it was, um, it was a moment. It would be like a great lifetime movie moment of sort of, you know, surrendering. And suddenly not suddenly. Actually, I spent a couple months there and developed all my samples and prototypes and worked with the artisans to, to get it right. And suddenly got out from behind the wheel and had them start making my production. And that was really when my world and business took off. That must have been so liberating. Yeah. Oh, my uh, God. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, it was. <laughs> 
That's amazing. And I would say that it like engendered a real creative explosion because I think those four years, my lost years behind the wheel, were a period where things were sort of brewing mm-hmm. inside and I didn't quite know it. And I suddenly, you know, I had gone from working 80 hours a week making stuff to having, you know, not having to work those 80 hours. You know, I could do the same amount in 20 hours. And so I had 60 hours to create and dream and voila. Wow. And okay, so you are the guy who didn't know how to submit an invoice. But at some point, you know, you've become the guy who's built an empire. So I need to know did you just pick up your empire building skills along the way? Is it somewhere buried in your DNA and you just had to unearth it? Or did you have a mentor? How did you figure it out? kind of did it along the way, honestly. Like, I had a lot of happy luck and made some good decisions. I think one of the major turning points for me was when I decided to open a store. Mm. And my parents were very, like, kind of more academic-y and super like smart and not very business oriented. Mm -hmm. Um, And I said to them, I think I want to open a store. And they both said, that's a terrible idea. Don't do whatever (laughs) you don't do that. I thought, bingo, this is it. It's like, if they're against it, I should probably do it (laughs) because they were very risk averse. And so I took sort of all the profits from my company. I'd actually, you know what happened? I got an order from Pottery Barn and I think it was like, I think it was like an $80,000 order, which at the time was like mind-blowingly huge. This was 1998. Right. Yeah. I'd never gotten an order like that. I was sort of very hand mouth until that moment. And I took that money and got a store in Soho when, when rents were cheap. And voila. And then having a store, which... I had, and I, I was always very crafty in the way I would do things and save money and not spend anything. And I really, if anybody is listening to this and is trying to start their own business, I beg you to not spend any money and just keep your expenses lean, lean, lean. That is like, mm-hmm. if you, t- if anybody is listening to this, who's an aspiring entrepreneur, the one thing you should take away from this is that you should not spend a cent. Anyway. So that was how I rolled. And then I was in my store one day. I was working behind the register. Like I would make pots at my studio, sell them in this store. I had a few employees at this point, but I was doing a lot of stuff myself. And I guess this was about 1999. And I heard somebody on their cell phone just talking to them. They're like, oh, yeah, I'll be home at 7. Yeah, make Brussels sprouts. Um, blah, blah, blah. Where? Oh, yeah, I'm at Jonathan Adler. I'll see you. Blah, blah, blah. And I, at that moment, I thought, Oh, huh. Like having a retail store makes you like a thing. Like suddenly, oh, yeah. you, mm-hmm. you know, like I'm at Jonathan Adler and I was like, what? You're not just a guy now. You're a I'm thing. Not just a dude. I'm not just a potter. I'm like, you're a brand. <laughs> God, yes. That was sort of another turning point, I would say, because it just made me realize what it all could be. You know, that I had this platform to express myself. And I think the other revelation of of retail was that suddenly I could cut out the middleman and not seek anybody else's permission to make stuff. I could like throw it, make it, design it, manufacture it, and present it to the public without asking anybody's permission. I thought, wow, this is kind of powerful. And this is 
a real opportunity to kind of be unbridled. Mm. I think in as much as I became a brand, <laughs> I think it was because I was having a chitty chat with my husband the night of the, the legendary phone call I'm at John Snadler. And I, I was talking to him and he's like, like, huh, what's it all mean? I said, well, I don't know. I guess it means like, you know, that I kind of stand for something. And he was like, what? And I said, I don't know. I guess, you know, kind of the idea that design can be like incredibly chic, but irreverent, you know, like irreverent luxury. And that's kind of always been a little bit what's driven my design process, thinking like, oh, okay, so that's kind of what I stand for, irreverent luxury. And I think that to this day, my visual vocabulary has zigged and zagged, but I think there's a, a, a through line of like irreverent luxury in everything I do. I think you can sort of trace it all to that. Yeah. Effect. Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. And I would say that the Parker Palm Springs is also a great example of that. I live in Los Angeles, so I've had the good fortune of being able to visit that establishment on many occasions. Oh, and nice. yes, and it's just wow. It's densely eclectic. It feels of an era and timeless at the same time. It packs in so much visual and textural stimuli, but it does the very hard to do thing of remaining feeling uncluttered and not schizophrenic. Mm-hmm. And that's a little bit your trademark, I think. You also talk about accessorizing with abandon and. But that's a real gift. Not everyone can do it. No. Thanks, dude. <laughs> but um, what I really want to hear sweet. about is like, that must have been so exciting to land that gig when they came to you and said, we have this old hospitality resort in Palm Springs and we want you to revamp it. How did that go down? That was really cool. Actually, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, as, as someone who was never really employed, I kind of just say yes to everything. And I started to do a bit of decorating jobs. And yeah, they called me up and I designed that hotel, I guess about 10 years ago. And it's a really kind of great place. Yeah, Um, I I feel like it's one of the most Instagrammed uh, destinations in Palm Springs there is. I mean, it's just so beautiful. Oh, that's so sweet. You know what I think, you know, I was telling you guys how I kind of approached this whole thing as somewhat of an outsider. And as someone who's somewhat insular, and I still try to make whatever I do, whether it's something of a commercial and large scale, like the Parker or my stores, I still try to make it super personal. And I think that that's pretty clear in that hotel. Do you approach it in the sense of, oh, this is a space where I would want to live in? Is that kind of what you mean when you say personal? Well, I guess when I say personal, I mean eccentric. You know, I think it doesn't feel even remotely corporate. It still feels like the vision of a person rather than a considered corporate bitch. Got it. And I think that in that particular case, the way I approached it, and of course it's collaborative. I worked with incredible people, including the brilliant architect David Mann and the genius landscape designer, Judy Camion, who is incredible. I mean, she is a true artiste. But the way I conceived of that hotel was that I imagined... First, I thought, where would I want to go? I wouldn't want to go to some corporate thing. I thought I'd want to go to some place that was sort of like the estate of an anti-mame kind of person. Like if I had been mm-hmm. lucky enough to have an eccentric and inspiring aunt, uh-huh. um, I imagined that this would be her estate. And I dubbed her Mrs. Parker. And creating this narrative and a fictitious heroine gave me a really great, clear narrative mandate. I just thought, what would Mrs. Parker do? I thought she would definitely have suits of armor guarding the men's and women's room. So there's like 
two giant, fabulous suits of armor as soon as you come in, juxtaposed with like a dangling Italian chandelier and a heraldic tapestry and lots of different, lots and lots and lots of different eclectic visual idioms happening that I think are unified by the fact that they are all fabulous. Right. So it's not really a stylistically dogmatic place, but each and every object is kind of great. And is each and every object is something that if you were lucky enough to have like a great aunt who was eccentric and she kicked the bucket, you might really fight over all of the objects in her estate. That's kind of how I thought about it. It's like, if it wouldn't be something that you would fight over, if your great aunt kicked the bucket, we wouldn't put it in the hotel. And so that, so that was just a very good way to approach it. Mrs. Parker's estate. And I think my favorite spot in the hotel is the restaurant, the sort of like clubby restaurant, which we call Mr. Parker's. And that was sort of the last thing I did in the hotel. And we had all said, all right, Mrs. Parker, this, Mrs. Parker, that, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, well, well, she probably has a husband. And I imagined that he, Mr. Parker, was this hedonistic, louche kind of denizen of the dark. Um, <laughs> and so um, Mr. Parker's is inspired by Mrs. Parker's husband. And it's really great, very like clubby and kind of dark. And the logo for Mr. Parker's is a satyr, and it's really cool. I'm so excited you told us that story. I go to Palm Springs regularly, and I can't wait to revisit the Parker, knowing all of this backstory. It's yeah, me give too. It's so much more meaning for me. Oh, absolutely. So let's uh, shift gears and talk about your daily life at the office. You mentioned how you do so many different things, from decorating to designing to throwing pots and being creative, but also being a retailer and a, and a business person. So what's an average day like for you? All right. Do you want it from the top? Yep. Yeah. Okay. Like, how All do right. you take your coffee? <laughs> All right. 7 a.m., I get out of bed, walk the dog, have brekkie, read the Times, the Post, and the Wall Street Journal, go to the gym where I work out ham every day. You know that expression? I just learned it. No, it's new. It's hard as a mother. Um, yeah. So. <gasps> That, nice. I know. I just learned. I'm trying to Is say. Is that from working wrong. with all those millennials? Yes. The millennials are teaching me. Awesome. So I'm, I'm workshopping my material. <laughs> okay. Cool. Anyway, go to the gym every day, um, roll into the office at around 9.30, 10. And then my, my routine stops and it becomes completely unroutine, which is fabulous. Most of I just sort of bounce around. I have a whole floor in an office building in Soho. There are about 65 people here, and it's a really fabulous and diverse place. I call it the Fantasy Factory, which is sort of a cheeky allusion to Warhol's factory and an allusion to the fact that we all, I hope, make fantasies come true here via creativity. I like to check in with my business team, usually first thing in the morning, find out all about yesterday's business. Then I bounce around, talk to all the designers, see what they're up to, sort of critique and change and tweak. Then I might pop into the studio and make a pot or two. I have a couple of potters who work with me who have been with me for a very long time. And I spend a lot of time in the studio where like usually classic rock is playing. And as we speak, it's actually two for Tuesday <laughs> on the classic rock station. Oh yeah. So that's always a big day. 
in the Get the Rush t-shirt back on, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, I have lunch with the president of my company every day and chitty chat and catch up on everything and then go back to the studio, make a pot, talk to my designers and then start my evening at seven-ish. I love that you're still so hands-on and just like randomly throwing pots throughout the day. Yeah. <laughs> well, it keeps my people on their toes. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm not, you know, in the grave yet. We have this joke with my design team that they, they act like I'm like the doddering founder. Like, you know, I'm some 80-year-old decrepit dude. And they're always <laughs> like, yeah, Jonathan, he's really great. You know, he still comes in every day and he's really active. <laughs> yeah, and, he's still yeah. sharp. <laughs> yeah, he's still sharp. He tries, bless his heart. Um, no i'm like in it and you know you have to be i'm doing this because it's something i'm passionate about i'll tell you something really hilarious that happened to me recently i gave some talk at some brooklyn design thingy and it's so funny because i think people i think in as much as people think about me which i i don't think people think about me enough but (laughs) even when they do i think they a lot of people see me as this kind of fancy interior design kind of dude who's, you know, very pompy. And they don't realize that I was kind of Brooklyn before Brooklyn was Brooklyn. But anyway, I I told my story at this Brooklyn design conference and this dude came up to me afterwards and said, he was bearded and he said to me, Oh, you know, that was, it was good to hear you talk. You know, you're, I didn't really expect to like you, but you were different from how I expected you to be. And I was like, okay, um, thanks. Um, (laughs) Let's dig into that. What, what did you expect? said, well, it was interesting to me to learn that you were really a craftsperson. I always just sort of assumed you were in it for the money, <laughs> which, and I actually burst out laughing and I said, yeah, like most people, I went into pottery for the money. <laughs> you know, I'm like, that's not a thing. And I think that's a reflection of, you know, I had more success than I should have had. And I think people want to find a way to explain it and, mm. I, you know, had I been young and seen me, I probably would have thought, I, mean, I would have found some way to explain it. And the truth is, I've just been at it a really long time and have, I think, remained authentic in as much as, you know, one can be authentic. And I have a diverse work life and body of work. And that's really a reflection of having been at it for so long. There's no real answer for how my career has unfolded. And it certainly didn't start because of the money. The fact that I have managed to sort of create a life that is kind of nice is really unexpected. Well, yes, I can see how it'd be unexpected, but I also feel like I shouldn't have to apologize for it. You've, you've worked hard, you've paid your dues, you've built a really authentic brand that you believe in that's really of your personality. And I think one of the reasons that explains your success is just that you've never tried to be anything other than yourself. Is that me projecting onto you or is that true? uh, No, I think it's totally true. And I feel extraordinarily lucky because I think that my authentic self is actually quite schizophrenic. I think that the two things that are most authentic to me is that I'm authentically a potter and including all of the stuff that comes with that from Birkenstocks to Joni Mitchell to, you know, a pottery ethos and my other authentic self is kind of a Jap, you know, I kind of am <laughs> yeah. like a, a Jewish American prince. Like I really sort of am. I'm yeah. I do like my creature comfort and the fact that I've managed to 
marry those two authentic and seemingly incompatible identities is like really quite a miracle. People should like write theses about that. It's like such a weird thing. Yeah. So you just said married, and I have to tell you, the love story of Jonathan Adler and Simon Doonan is, it's epic. In my mind, I have this idea of you guys as this idealized, glamorous fairy tale of, you know, great love, solid partnership, eccentric yet impeccable style, and Uh. constant hilarity. (laughs) Now, I know you're human, so I want you to tell me something normal, mundane, pet peeves, passive aggressiveness, something like that, that will help us and our listeners recognize you two as earthlings. First of all, that is so sweet and so hilarious. So thanks. <laughs> yeah, I'll just, first I'll just say a bit about my husband, Simon, is the cutest person who ever lived. We <laughs> met about 20, it's like 21 and a half years ago on a blind date, pre-internet, um, we, it was semi-blind. Like I was selling at Barney's. He knew who I was. And I certainly knew who he was because he was like a little celebutante. And <laughs> I, think I met him. He thought he was getting like a bohemian clay-spattered potter. And I thought I was getting like a little buttoned-up retail exec. And the truth is it's like we did a complete bait and switch. He's probably the most bohemian of spirit person I know. He is like the least bourgeois approach to life ever. He's like just very bohemian. And I'm probably a little more bourgeois. As for, I love the idea, are we human? Uh, We. (laughs) Okay, well, let's humanize you a little bit. So what books on your nightstand? What are you reading right now? Oh my God. Right now I'm reading this book called What Belongs to You by Garth Greenwell about a hustler in Romania. It's like contemporary literary fiction. I read a lot. Like I read tons and tons of books and yet somehow managed to watch a lot of TV as well. (laughs) I guess I make time for the things that matter. I, yeah, I read a lot of like, I guess literary fiction mostly and often quite dark. And then I watch a lot of very dark television. Actually, I watch, um, my favorite show is probably lock up on MSNBC. Mm Mm-hmm. Are you into this like true crime being elevated to high art thing, like with the jinx and making a murderer? I like it a little more raw. Like Lock Up is pretty raw. Yeah. Yeah. I like the first 48 a lot, also mm. quite raw. There's this famous book by Paul Johnson, who's this British historian. And I think he's written a bunch. I think it was a book he wrote called Intellectuals. It profiled a lot of different intellectuals and talks about how different their true selves were from their um, public persona. Like Karl Marx, man of the people, actually had a slave his entire life. This like woman who cooked and cleaned for him and he never paid her. She was just like a slave. And who's the other one? Like Rousseau, who a uh, French philosopher who believed in the innate goodness of people, was actually a monster who had like 85 children who he abandoned in Paris orphanages and let them die. And so I think that I'm kind of like, I'm, I'm quite different in reality from um, sort of how I present myself. Hmm. Interesting. So that book kind of resonated with me. Like I like a lot of, you know, dark culture and television and books. And I'm a little bit more of like a brooding and analytical person than people might imagine. So I just recently got word that you are working with Fisher Price as a creative director. Is that true? And if so, please tell us everything. 
oh yeah, I am. Fisher Price called me and they asked me to like be their creative director and consult with them. And I thought, what a fab thing because children's toys and and gear is really part of decor. It's mm-hmm. like it's the stuff you surround yourself with. You know, it's like you can have this beautiful pristine house, but your kid's stuff is going to be scattered about. So I thought, yep. what a great opportunity to try and make that stuff look good. Well, not um, only that, and- but those Fisher Price toys, like they carved a really indelible impression on my brain as mm-hmm. a developing youth, you know, figuring out how to count and, and make shapes fit together. All of that stuff really lasts in the developmental brain. And why not add some aesthetics to it so that. Totally. No, I'm a Fisher Price kid. Like I yeah. grew up all Fisher Price all the time. Mm-hmm. And. The idea that I can make all that stuff that kids are going to remember in the future is really fabulous. And I'm so into it. And just, you know, being able to put my imprimatur on an iconic American company like that is really cool. And they're a dream to work with. And it's, it's kind of a lovely diversion from my normal life, which is spent focusing on chic, chic, chic. And mm-hmm. now I can focus on fun, fun, fun. And it's a really mm. good compliment to life. And also... I'm a lucky dude in that people call me to collaborate, which is a kind of a great thing about contemporary design world. Yeah. And Fisher Price is a fun one to collaborate with. You you are human. You convinced me or you <laughs> at least you tried to make me believe that. I'm not sure I believe it yet, but humans <laughs> usually retire at some point and I know you have kind of a fixation with country clubs. You got to tell me there's a Jonathan Adler country club coming down the line. Somewhere on the horizon. Yeah, that's a really good idea. I hope some country club developer is listening to this and is going to, like, hit mm-hmm. me up. Yeah. Yeah, make it HMU. happen. <laughs> HMU, country club owners. All the designers will be fighting to get a spot in the Jonathan Adler country club. That would be a dream. Because, yeah, yeah, my need to make the stuff that I want to surround myself with, um, country club might be getting right for me. So what are you looking forward to in the near and the long-term future for your Jonathan Adler empire? <laughs> I kind of try not to think about anything. I'm, I am looking forward to just making more stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I think like one of my husband's books, I can't remember which book, he wrote something quite profound. He was writing about aging and he said he always imagined life as being like a giant disco cube. Like when you're in the disco and they have a cube that a go-go dancer climbs up on. Mm-hmm. He's like, I always imagine life is like a big disco cube. And when you're young, you hop on top of the cube and start jiggling around. You jiggle and you jiggle and you jiggle until finally you grow weary of jiggling and you fall off and somebody else's turn. But while you're up there jiggling, you should just like go ham, you know, mm-hmm. go for it. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm pretty much mid-jiggle. Part of the disco cube jiggle is trying not to think about it too much, trying not to plan too much, and just really focusing on coming into the office every day and trying to be creative without reflecting. What about for you personally? Is there anything coming up like a vacation or a nephew's graduation or anything you're looking (laughs) forward to? Yeah. What I'm looking forward to is the fact that summer's around the corner and I am going to be at my radical house on Shelter Island. Oh, yeah. And I'm going to paddleboard all summer long, which is my favorite thing to do. Um, And I cannot wait. Awesome. That sounds like a dream. 
So you're an inspiring guy. You've had an inspiring life and and you've built a really nice career for yourself and a nice personal life for yourself with a 21-year marriage. What I'm getting at is that you probably have some real sage wisdom to drop on us. Mm. <laughs> and I mean like commencement speech caliber wisdom. Mm. Okay. I'm ready. You know, <laughs> give it to us. Well, my, Bring it on. All right. I guess I have a couple of bits of wisdom, which are totally the opposite of how I rolled, which is I think the best advice I could ever give anybody is to get a job. Just get a low-level job in a company you like. Just get a job. And don't think you're going to start your own brand. Just get a job and surrender to it. And then my husband told me, advice that he just gave some kids that I'm going to pass along because I thought it was the best advice I'd ever heard. His advice was always be 10 minutes early. Hmm. Right? Like, especially in the workplace, if you show up 10 minutes early, you won't soar to the top. Like I, of my 65 operatives, Believe me, I know which ones are here bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and early and which ones kind of roll in a little bit late. It's true. And it speaks a lot to how well you can manage yourself outside of the workplace, but also um, how reliable you are within the workplace and how much you want to be there. Yeah, to be Mm. early. In 21 years, I've never found anything he has said profound ever (laughs) <laughs> and um, then, boom, 21 years later, it's all he it drops took. a knowledge bomb on you he and you're like, knowledge, Whoa. Show up 10 minutes early. And I was like, huh, maybe it's all been worth it. <laughs> well, do you have anything in specific you'd like to plug a venture or a product that's coming out or a new retail store or something you want to let our listeners know about? What would I like to plug? I would like to plug my balding pate. Um, that I would like to plug but I shan't honestly I just want to plug my new stuff just keep your eyes on my stores and website and you'll see all the whole new stuff and I hope that your listeners and others will buy it so I will be able to continue my delightful journey Right. oh yeah and I want a country club owner to um, hit me up yeah okay we'll make sure I make that connection so where can people find you uh, and more information about your products? Um, you can find me on my paddleboard and you can find <laughs> information on my products, um, on my website or any one of my 29 stores. And that's uh, jonathanadler.com, correct? That is correct. And you're present on social media, I assume? Yes. Is it just at Jonathan Adler? I think so. Okay, cool. All right. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us today. We've had a great time talking to you. Oh, yeah, thank you. thanks a million. Lovely, lovely chatting to you. And I always love to talk about myself. So thank you. <laughs> it's been a joy. <laughs> that was so cool, but I'm... um. I'm so bummed I forgot to ask him one of my most important questions. Oh, no. What was that? He's so optimistic that I was I'm dying to know, like, at what point he knew it was important to focus on optimism. Like if he was rebelling against the sadness that he felt when he was a tortured teen. You know, I know that a lot of people feel like happiness is hard work. And I feel like he's definitely put a lot of his energy into maintaining a bright outlook and 
and optimism, and he's trying to bring that to the general public through his design. And I forgot to ask him about oh, it. Oh, no. So- well, that means we just have to get him back on the show at a later date. Well, he's the kind of guy that I think it would be really lovely to talk to fairly regularly because... Mm. Um, He's fun. He's fun. Yeah, basically. And he's easy to talk to. And he's got a lot of uh, great life experience and business experience and design and art experience. I mean, he's got a lot to share. Yeah. And he's so young still. I know. So he's going to have a lot to share as as we continue to move forward in his career. This grows and grows and grows. Just the tip of the iceberg. Right. Just the tip of the iceberg. Um, right. But it was so it was so lovely to talk to him, and he was very generous with. Um, yeah, and he's always so gracious too, and, yeah. and saying thank you for the compliments and everything, which is lovely. His mama raised him right. Right, great manners. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of Clever. In fact, Jamie and I want to take a minute to acknowledge you guys, the listeners. You've been sending us a lot of fantastic emails, tweets, and comments with feedback and constructive commentary. Some of you have mentioned you'd like to hear more from me and Jamie, and some of you want us to go deeper with our guests. Believe us, we do too, and we're going to do that. And some of you just want us to know how inspired you are by our guests, and we love hearing from you. We are so grateful for this feedback. While we've got a few episodes in the can, we're paying attention. So if there's something you want more of, give us a shout. We'll be incorporating your feedback into future episodes. So keep it coming. And please don't forget, rate us on iTunes and spread the word about Clever. Yes, please. You can subscribe to Clever on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on the web at cleverpodcast.com, where you can learn more about Jonathan and see images of his work. Including a touching portrait of a young clay spattered Jonathan at work at his potter's wheel. Oh, I know. And don't forget to join us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Clever Podcast. Special thanks to Chris Modal of Your Studio, who edited this episode, and to L1011 for our music. Hello there. This message is coming to you from the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, a collection of fascinating conversations with leading historians, giving you the lowdown on history's biggest characters, hidden stories and greatest adventures. Speaking of great adventures, this week, the History Extra podcast is brought to you by Booking.com. Whether you're looking for a culture-filled city break, a local getaway or a far-flung adventure, you can save at least 30% with Booking.com's Black Friday deals. These deals are for a limited time only, so you'll need to book before 1st of December to make the most of them. But the good news is that you'll have the flexibility to travel any time in 2021. Head to Booking.com forward slash Black Friday to book your next big adventure.